And I was kind of happily ensconced doing my scholarly work until the world went a little crazy and people started to attack science. And then after they got done with that, they started to attack facts in general. And that's when I felt like philosophers really needed more of a voice. That's the author Lee McIntyre, who spoke with flat earthers, anti-vaxxers, and some other big-time skeptics for his latest book, How to Talk to a Science Denier. And I've since come to realize that all science denial is really like that. It's organized. It's got a purpose, and it's not really a mistake. It's a campaign. And as a campaign, it deserves some pushback, which is what I do. And Lee McIntyre will be pushing back on two podcast hosts today as we roleplay a difficult holiday conversation on vaccination and family gatherings. This is The Purple Principle, a podcast about political and, in this episode, scientific polarization. I'm Robert Pease. And I'm Jillian Youngblood, co-host here and executive director of Civic Genius. Always keen to play devil's advocate if it might, in some small way, illuminate people's thinking. So much progress on COVID, but there's new variants out there, and we're certainly not out of the woods yet. I'll share a little bit of what happened in my family when we let our guard down recently. But first, let's get to know Dr. Lee McIntyre, prolific author and research fellow at Boston University. Starting with the different science denial targets, which all have some important common threads. There are different forms of science denial, different topics, I should say. There's evolution denial, there's anti-vax, you know, both pre and post-COVID. There's flat earth, uh, there's climate denial. It started modern science denial with tobacco, them claiming, the tobacco executives claiming that uh, cigarettes didn't cause lung cancer. Now, in that case, and with climate denial, it was really economic interest. So sometimes people create doubt where there isn't any because it really serves their financial interests quite well. But then you look at something like anti-vax before COVID, I mean, that wasn't even really political. Some people didn't trust Big pharma, some people didn't trust big corporations, but left and right, there were anti-vaxxers. Now that one has been politicized. Why do you think an anti-science identity would be appealing for someone? Well, remember, it's not an anti-science identity. It's a pro-whatever-the-other-thing-is identity that science happens to be stepping on. So that you know, that's maybe the narrow area where they react. And it's really fascinating, isn't it? that people have that problem because it makes you wonder if your own beliefs are the same way. Are all beliefs just based on identity? And I think, no, no, no. Some of my beliefs are based on evidence because I've changed my mind on the basis of evidence. And that's what you're supposed to do when you're rational. But yes, the thing that I've noticed in speaking with science deniers and in reading accounts of them is that their mistaken beliefs are not just what they happen to believe, it's who they are. So when you attack the belief, you're attacking them as a person. And so you can see why you have to be sort of delicate about it, because it's like attacking somebody's religion or their politics. Yeah, I mean, the flip side of it. So I live in Seattle, and I don't necessarily always wear a mask when I'm outside and there are no people around. And as far as I know, the science backs that up. 
But a lot of people do mask up outside, even if they're not around other people. And that feels sometimes like the other side of that identity question, where people are signaling in a different way. That is a very interesting observation. If you're in a community that you know is a you know, pro-vaccine community, but you were one of the first people to get the vaccination, and so you didn't have to wear a mask, was there ever a time when you put on that mask because you didn't want to signal to them, I'm an anti-vaxxer, I'm not one of you. So you put on the mask even though you didn't need it. That too is identity. Yeah, I did it for months. <laughs> we didn't want to be ostracized at the playground. It's so interesting. I was wondering if you could talk about, um, you had a conversation with coal miners about global warming. And I was wondering if you could tell us about that conversation. This was terrific, just from a human level, it was very interesting to me because I had gone in there thinking that people who made their living mining coal would probably be less likely to be, you know, believe that climate change was true. And they burst every expectation that I had and, you know, had said, look, you know, I've got grandchildren. I think that climate change is real. I think that our community is, or, you know, our earth is in trouble or, you know, our world is in trouble. And then I asked the tough question of one of them. I still remember. I said, how do you justify in your mind every day going down in the mine and doing something that you know is hurting the world that your grandchildren are going to inherit? And he said, you got to understand, coal miners are fatalistic. I go down into that mine every day thinking it might be my last day on earth. So if I'm willing to do that, you know, you don't even need to finish the sentence. You understand. He's got to put food on the table tonight. And that's when I realized, too, that it's not just the deniers who were victims. It's other folks, right? I had a lot more empathy for people in the mining industry after those conversations. Yeah. It's bleak. Um, it is bleak. Tell us about Ted, which is uh, another person you met, another conversation you had, um, who's a scientist and a GMO, a genetically modified food alarmist. I like the way you describe that alarmist because he's not a denier, I figured out. So again, I went in with, now this was a guy I've known for 40 years. So it wasn't as if I didn't know him. It wasn't a stranger. But I'd never talked to him about GMOs. But because of COVID, the research for my book came to a grinding halt. So I called my friend Ted and I asked him, and he's a scientist, but he's also really, really far left. And then we started to talk about GMOs. And like I said, he was not a denier, but he was concerned. And, you know, he raised some really good points for me about industry concerns, corporate concerns, et cetera, et cetera. But the one thing that I was ready on, the one thing I had really you know, done my homework on, was the literature about whether or not GMOs were dangerous to eat, which they're not. Uh, there has never been any study which has provided scientific evidence that they're dangerous to eat. The book was really about conversations. I preferred to have them face-to-face. -face. This one was you know, over, <laughs> over the phone because it had to be. But we really pushed one another. And, and, you know, one point that I make in my book is in order to get through to somebody, you have to trust them. And it's pretty hard to build trust with a stranger. But with Ted, we already trusted one another, which meant that we were really hard on each other. I mean, to the point of almost insulting as the transcript is in the book, right? He gave as good as he got to me. 
So you attended the Flat Earth Convention a while ago, which I think Rob is going to talk about in a little bit, and I'm excited to hear about. But curious if other than that, have you had firsthand experiences with this kind of mistrust and science denial in your personal life? Well, I I have, but it's a little painful to talk about because in some cases it involves family, and I can't really out (laughs) that. But yes, this has, uh, I've seen this not just firsthand conversations with strangers, but with others. And of course, it's all around us in the media, and I get plenty of mail, which I usually engage with if it's not too terrible. And so, you know, I hear the same sorts of things about different topics. And, you know, years ago, there were some researchers, uh, Mark and Chris Hufnagel, uh, brothers, who came up with the idea, really a fabulous idea that all science denial was the same. Whatever the topic, they all followed the same reasoning strategy. They all cherry-picked facts, believed in conspiracy theories, engaged in illogical reasoning, relied on fake experts, and thought that science had to be perfect in order to be believed. Those five tropes, you know, anytime I've ever encountered any form of science denial, I just mentally go through those five tropes and think, yep, There it is. That's our special guest today, Lee McIntyre, research fellow in the history and philosophy of science at Boston University, and author most recently of How to Talk to a Science Denier, which in this role-play part of the episode will be Jillian playing anti-vax cousin Jillian. And Rob playing cousin anti-almost-everything Rob. We'll be cherry-picking facts. Promoting conspiracy theories reasoning illogically and relying on fake experts, and expecting science to be perfect, then dismissing it when it falls short. I'm ready and dangerous. Here then is anti-science Jillian fielding the call from Cousin Lee McIntyre and that most sensitive of family questions this season. Have you been vaccinated? You know, we all got sick last year anyway, so I think we're probably, you know, have certainly got some natural immunity anyway. And I just feel like our bodies are always overcoming viruses and, you know, bodies are magical like that. So we haven't, we've decided not to get vaccinated at this point. Wow. Interesting. Do you know anybody who's had COVID? Yeah, I know a couple of people. And, you know, they were like, some people got, you know, I know some people who got pretty sick, kind of like you get when you have the flu, maybe. But, um, you know, I don't know anyone who who didn't get over it. Wow. I know somebody who died of it. I mean, that's one thing we've all learned in the past couple of uh, months, that it's it's a bit of a lottery. And just, you're not sure how anybody's going to react. You, you don't know who's going to get it, who isn't, how they're going to react when they get it. Yeah, I guess that's true. I'm sorry about your, your friend. Um, it's kind of kind of strange to me that um, you know, like, so I have a friend who um, who did have COVID and and now I think probably has some immunity to it, and I just think it's kind of crazy that she can't go into like a restaurant or a coffee shop yeah. in a lot of places now, um, even though she has immunity because she hasn't gotten the vaccine. It just makes me wonder, like, what the motivation is for trying to get everybody yeah. vaccinated. Well, people are scared. Different people. Uh you know, have different experiences. And, you know, your friend's got a perfect right not to get vaccinated, but she doesn't have a right to go anywhere she wants with no consequences as a result of it, because, you know, the other people have rights too. 
So like I've heard a lot of women talking about their menstrual cycles changing after they get vaccinated. And it's not like one person. It seems to be really common. Everyone says that the vaccine's safe, but you know, there are a lot of people talking about side effects that I'm not hearing any of the doctors talk yeah. about. You know, the funny thing, I, I mean, I study science denial. I study uh, about, oh, see, I just screwed up there, didn't I, Jillian? <laughs> By putting it that way. I'm also doing like the wrong voice, I realize. I should be more like Southern California. Where I was going with this is <laughs> that sometimes people get victimized by false information. And how do you know who to trust? Yeah, so back in, in mode here, I guess the question that I'd say is, why do you trust some folks on Instagram who you've never met to be you know, an accurate reporter of whatever it was that got them sick, but you're not trusting your doctor who would probably tell you that you should get vaccinated. Maybe. I just think, I don't know, I've been emphasizing a lot like what I eat and I'm really careful about what I put in my body. And I just feel like bodies are kind of magical and they know how to respond to all of these things that come their way. Like I think that our whole health culture in this country is oriented in the wrong way. Like we don't really think about what makes us well. We just like take pills and shots for everything. Okay, so here I'd be very close to closing things up just because you don't want to go on too long in any one conversation. But I'd end with something for you to think about like this. I hope we get to see one another, but let me ask you this. What evidence, if I had it, would help you to make up your mind about the vaccine? What's your really your number one concern that if I could do a little research for you and send you something to read you might be willing to read it and think about it a little bit. That was author and philosopher Lee McIntyre role-playing with fully vaccinated Jillian here, pretending to be a certain type of anti-vaxxer. And Jillian, I do have to commend one particular aspect of your performance, throwing menstrual cycles at Lee. That always trips up a guy. I will say that to prepare for this role, I did spend like five minutes on Instagram to see what people are worried about. And that does seem to be a big one, but social media is not real life. So hard to change one's identity, even in role play, if real tragedies involved. I had the same problem playing a character who just casually rejects so much evidence and I didn't have menstrual cycles in my repertoire. <laughs> Should we talk about guy stuff for a minute to balance it out? <laughs> Like, do you want to talk about football again? I do think we covered that more than adequately in the last episode with Dr. Tanya Israel, actually. But we really should get back to the game at hand. Lee McIntyre counseling anti-vax Cousin Rob. Lee, I know why you're calling. I feel like I've had covid I'm not getting the vaccine. We're already talking about boosters. They don't have this down. So I'll just save your breath right there. There's nothing I could say to convince you to get the vaccine. Well, if you could say that we finally figured this out, you won't need a booster, you can get this one shot and it will prevent you 100%, not 90%, not 80%, not diminishing over time, not you'll need a booster next year. I would think about it. But the story changes every few months. It's tough, right? Because they change their mind about whether eggs are good for you. They change their mind about whether coffee's good for you. You don't know who to trust. Exactly. Aspirin. I was taking aspirin every day for 20 years. 
Now, don't take your don't aspirin. Don't take aspirin. It could, be the sa- it could be the same thing. They could be pulling this vaccine out of us at this time next year. But you know what they're not going to change their mind about? COVID sucks. COVID will kill you. I've got to say that if it's a personal choice, that means that you're also responsible for the consequences of the choice. But what happens when those consequences go out to other people? Pulling this vaccine out of us this time next year. Wow, Rob. Full on anti-science. I am weirdly proud of that one line. But again, it's so difficult, even for a few minutes, to get into that identity. I've had three doses. I'm actually looking forward to a fourth. I know people who've really struggled with COVID early on. And I really helplessly watched my wife battle a breakthrough infection recently after we let our guard down and went to a wedding. Oh, man. No precautions? None. Zero. Like COVID was over, which is what everyone wants to believe and what's keeping it around. So with that urgency in mind, let's leave role play behind and learn a bit more from Lee McIntyre on how to address vaccine skepticism and science denial. One thing that really resonated with me that you write about regarding people who are resistant to getting the vaccine is that admitting uncertainty can actually increase trust, which is something that I found in my work at Civic Genius. And although it's kind of a slippery slope in conversation, it can be really effective. Could you talk a little bit about why that's an impactful way to have this kind of discussion? All science is uncertain to a degree. I mean, scientific beliefs are not based on proof or certainty. That's just not how science works. Now, deniers love that because they use that as grounds for saying, oh, well, you can't prove this. Then my view is just as credible as yours, so I'll believe what I want to believe. Well, no, because probability is still a thing. If there's a one out of a million chance that the climate deniers are right, that's not a good chance, right? It's an irrational thing to believe. So, you know, building trust is important. And, you know, in some of the vaccine conversations, uh, there was a um, a focus group by Frank Luntz, the famous uh, Republican pollster, to try to find a message that was going to work on vaccines. And all 20 people in this focus group were uh, Republicans who were, uh, I don't say they were vaccine deniers, but they had not taken their vaccine and didn't plan to. And he was looking for a message that worked and just had a devil of a time finding one. And finally, the message that seemed to get through was when a scientist said, you know, look, here's what we don't know, but here's what we do know, just in the same way that I pitched it there. And they loved that because it didn't make them feel stupid. You say, well, you know, of course you've got questions. Scientists have questions too. Here's how we approached it. Here's what we found. Here's what the evidence showed us. By the way, here's what we still don't know. And here's what we're continuing to work on. Because then that gives the other person the permission to say, oh, well, you know, if you could show this to this level of confidence, then maybe I would get my vaccine. It just seems like when we were watching Behind the Curve, the movie about you know, Flat Earth Society, that we were watching people doubling down. They were being presented with facts, with evidence. They were doing experiments that weren't working, and they were doubling down. So when it is so central to your identity, when it's your, like your favorite 
thing in the world and you're presented with that evidence, wouldn't it be natural to double down? Yeah, I saw that same film and it's incredible because they, and I mean, I know this from firsthand conversations with flat earthers, they will tell you, my view is not based on faith, it's based on evidence. And yes, we do experiments. And so bully, go off and do the experiment. What happens when the experiment doesn't go their way? Don't tell anybody, right? That's not what a scientist would do. But if you say that, right, if you humiliate them, then you're never going to change their mind. Well, good. You've seen Behind the Curve, and we had the filmmakers Nick Andert and Daniel Clark on our show earlier this season. We wanted to play for you one quote from the scientist from Caltech, Spiros Michalakis, who made the most effort to speak with the Flat Earthers and try and help them move beyond their beliefs. The problem I see is actually not from the side of the conspiracy theorists. It is actually from our side, from the side of science. Very often it's difficult not to look down. The worst case scenarios, you just completely push these individuals at the fringe of society, and then society just lost them. And evidently society's lost a lot of people. So does that resonate with you? I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say that the problem is with the culture that has alienated them. But I will say this, it's not going to bring them back to be condescending or to make fun. I took one fellow out to dinner and, I mean, I liked him. We really, I felt a kinship with this guy. But I didn't agree with him about almost anything we talked about. But yes, I detected some sense of wanting to be part of a larger community that he felt rejected from. And I did not want to reject him. Even when he said things that made me furious, not about Flat Earth, but about other topics, other conspiracy theories, that made me absolutely furious. And I, I just made the decision, you can't do it. You just, you know, it's going to feel good for two seconds. You can't do it. So I didn't. Yes, but that's not an easy thing to do. And this echoes another guest in our holiday survival series, Dr. Tanya Israel. She's a psychologist at UC Santa Barbara. Her recent book is Beyond Your Bubble. She emphasizes the importance of a technique called active listening for discussions just like this. Often when we are having conversations, we are listening to respond rather than listening to understand. And so when we're listening to respond, somebody will say something that they think, and then we say what we think back. And that can be useful at times for an exchange of ideas, but especially when there's a situation where we may not have the trust built, where we really may be coming from very different perspectives, it doesn't help to move that conversation forward for us to do that. It can just get us sort of farther apart. So when somebody says what they think, rather than coming back with what you think, you come back with what they think, reflecting back what they just said in a way. And it does a couple of things. One thing that that does is it helps them to feel like you understood them. And that is just a healing process in itself. It also makes sure that you did actually understand them. Yeah. So Lee, we wondered if what Dr. Israel says there does that resonate with some of the challenging conversations you've had? Boy, she hit it, it just exactly right. Because by listening to the other person, they feel heard. And they will sometimes also tell you what it would take to convince them, which is very useful information. 
And I, I confess I knew a little bit about active listening, which I've learned about since I wrote the book. I really didn't know about it when I had written the book. What happened is after I wrote the book, I've been hearing about other people who were using this approach. And it's really been fascinating for me. It's like the light goes down low and then you see all these other little campfires on the beach of all these other people who are doing the same thing. Street epistemology, active listening, deprogramming people out of cults. And there's this wonderful literature. You know, you read Steve Hassan's work on cults, read Eli Saslow, Rising Out of Hatred. It's all recommending the same thing. Treat people like human beings and they will trust you and they will listen to you. And by the way, I think that if we're ever going to get over the political divide in this country, we're going to do it the same way. It's going to have to be grassroots conversations face to face. That's the only thing that's actually going to work. Face to face, Jillian, that's the only method that works. But here we are stuck on audio. Well, maybe we don't need to be too literal. I think what Lee implies by face-to-face may actually be heart-to-heart, like with real emotion, rather than brain-to-brain. You know, brains get a little competitive, but not so much with hearts. And Lee McIntyre's echoing here a few important things we heard from Tanya Israel in part one of our Holiday Survival Kit. The importance of respect and compassion as well as that skill of active listening. Yeah, and these are really important concepts for me and my colleagues at Civic Genius, where we try to build dialogue across that fractious political divide. So I know I'm going to take Tanya Israel's and Lee McIntyre's advice to heart, but I'm also going to put it right to work. We'll try to do the same here at The Purple Principle as we plan our season three, kicking off in January of 2022. First, though, we have part three of our holiday survival kit upcoming with neuropsychologist Dominic Packer. He's co-author of the new book, The Power of Us, harnessing our shared identities to improve performance, increase cooperation, and promote social harmony. Ambitious stuff, but Dr. Packer has spent decades researching the many facets of social identity and the consequences of polarization on our basic humanity. One of the tragedies about political polarization is we lose a lot of complexity of identity. You know, we're all multifaceted. We all contain multitudes and they don't all have to be the same thing, right? Your political identity doesn't have to be exactly the same as your religious identity or your occupational identity or your the hobbies you have. But in a polarized society, they all tend to collapse into one thing. Then Dominic will go right for those heartstrings when Rob roleplays his unvaccinated cousin, potentially putting himself and the whole family at risk this holiday season. We miss you and, and we care about you. And I, I know this is something you really feel strongly about, but, but we actually believe that this is harmful and you're putting yourself at risk and we wish you'd at least reconsider. It was really effective. So we hope you'll tune in for that episode and support us on Patreon as you make out your gift list this holiday season. Sherry Ann deserves a special shout out for becoming a Purple Principle Patreon patron, if I may say that one time slowly. Many thanks, Sherry. You can also help support us with a review on Apple Podcasts and with suggestions towards Season 3 of The Purple Principle. All those links are available in our show notes and on our website, purpleprinciple.com. This is Robert Pease and Jillian Youngblood wishing you a happy and safe holiday season from the Purple Principle team. Allison Byrne, production and audience engagement. Kevin A. Klein, senior audio engineer. Dom Scarlett and Grant Sherritt, research associates. 
Emma Trujillo, audio associate. Our musical identity is the talented composer and musician Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production. 